0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 48 and it is October 9th. My name is Tyler and of course I got my co- co-hosts Prateek and Nick. How's it going on today?
1: It's going well. Um, Just another day of another podcast and... There's Pratik, where's the hype, dude? The okay, we've got a
2: sick episode coming out. What is this All right, underselling? We've got some awesome topics. Pratik. let's ignore him, okay? Tyler, I'm just going to start the show because uh, that type of energy, we've got to do something to energize him. So let's start. You know, how much should the government <laughs> be allowed to coerce, to force the actions of us as private individuals, particularly as it relates to deeply held religious beliefs? Now this was raised three weeks ago during a Senate hearing on the nomination of Vermont Supreme Court Justice Beth Robinson to join the Second Federal Court. That's a big deal, and if she was confirmed, she'd become the first openly LGBTQ woman to serve on any federal appeals court. Now this gets to the First Amendment and the right to freely exercise one's religion. The vote on her nomination was delayed at the request of Republicans, but still, the the main point coming out of that hearing was her past on this, and really, to what extent should the government be allowed? to force you as an individual to do something that you don't want to do, whether it's for religious reasons or something else. Tyler Prateek, how do you feel about it?
0: Well, I believe the government should be able to tell you to do everything they want you to do. I don't think you should have to think for yourself because the government should tell you how to think. And I think that's the best path forward. So Prateek, what are your thoughts? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no no sarcasm Pratik okay? I no know that sarcasm. was a bunch of BS coming from Tyler so how do you really feel we'll give him time to think <laughs> over his answer so Pratik let, I, let's say it this way you know you're a huge evangelical Christian I know we're imagining here but let's just think you're a huge amb- evangelical Christian someone comes in they say you have to do something against your religion H- how would you feel about it the federal government coming in and telling you to do this
1: I think that I mean the law is the law you have to follow the law and regardless of whether you believe something regardless of whatever whatever religion you follow and regardless of whatever you feel about um what's going on in your bedroom and what other people should do in their bedroom that's like it it all kind of goes out of the window whenever you're dealing with the law and with this particular supreme court justice nominee from vermont like, I think that none of that stuff should really matter as yeah. long as they're able to no, enforce a
2: law. Pratique, let me be clear. Sorry. I was just saying LGBTQ as background for, like, why her nomination would be a big deal. The issue okay. was not about her sexuality or sexual the issue, preference. Nick? The issue here was that she defended a number of years ago that this private individual in Vermont who was trying to get um, two other private individuals to make her. It was a small business. Um, to make her some pro-life, or sorry, some pro-choice you know, cards for this, this group that she had with a bunch of other ladies who were pro-life. And the group, both of, both of the groups were very deeply religious and Christian, both the woman who was soliciting the materials and the business who would be providing them. And the business providing them, a husband and wife, said, no, we don't feel comfortable with that. We're not pro, pro-choice. Uh, we're not going to do that. And then they started exploring a lawsuit. Ultimately, it was dropped. But, but that's the, that was the issue here. It's kind of like the wedding cake thing that happened a few years
0: ago, if you remember that.
1: So I don't know. What's your thoughts on this, Nick? I'm still trying to determine what my own thoughts are on this. Hold,
0: hold on. I'll go first then because Nick introduced it. So, I mean, what I said before was obviously a joke. But as far as religious freedoms go, I don't think they should have to be forced to make something just because someone tells them to make it. I think the business has a right to refuse even though it may seem discriminatory, it's, I, I believe religious freedom trumps uh, the individual's right to get a service in this instance.
2: Do you, how would you feel about this being applied to vaccines then? Because a lot of employers, and I guess the federal government now, I mean, it's a big question. It's a First Amendment thing not to have your religious rights and religious beliefs infringed upon. And so how do you feel, I guess, about the thought of the federal government mandating something like a vaccine, where someone for, I know we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but for religious reasons, to allow someone to say, "Hey, you know, fundamentally this goes against my religious beliefs," I'm going to opt out of it. Federal government get well, lost. Uh,
0: so I actually agree with that, but I also agree that businesses should be able to de- deny you for not having a vaccine. Like if you're going to a workout class and they require workout a vaccine to participate in that class, you can't participate. But the government shouldn't also force you to do something if your religious obligation tells you otherwise. So you're, you're caught on both ends of that. So I, I, I think that's more reasonable that the government shouldn't have to tell you what to do. But there are other ways to socially pressure people in getting them to do actions like this. And another way is if your business does not, let's say, make cards for someone based off who they are, then other people can say, "Hey, I'm not gonna buy anything from this business because they had these kind of actions. They believe in these morals, and I don't. So I'm not gonna uh, uh, give them any money." Totally fair
2: critique. I mean, you're a business owner. How do you feel about this sort of stuff? <laughs> I don't. If someone came that. in and said, "I, you need to provide hotel rooms to this big conference of, you know, uh, arsonists." sure they might down burn down the building so i guess there's a little risk there maybe arsonist isn't the best example but let's just say you're like no i don't want to house these people i don't want them staying in my hotel how do you, how would you feel as a business if someone I came think, to you and
1: i think that government shouldn't mandate people to do certain things they don't really have the right to interfere into businesses and telling them what they need to do and what they don't need to do now with um you know what tyler was alluding to social protective classes yeah <clears throat> I think with social pressure and certain protective classes, you can't directly discriminate against anyone, obviously. So that's out the window. But if you're forcing people to like sell a particular object because, you know, it's me, it's like, you know, it's like showing solidarity with a certain group or community. I don't think that you should be able, you should force people to do that kind of stuff. But I do think that there is social pressure that does come into it, and sometimes it works in the you know the plaintiff's favor, and sometimes it doesn't. Like look at so look at some company like Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A generates more profit profitability than any other fast food restaurant. I have never seen a Chick Fil A without having at least four or five cars in the drive-thru. But why is Chick Fil A so famous? Because Chick Fil A is taking a stance on something that many you know more progressive people would say that it's not the right stance to have on that, on that issue. I do think that you know, people will you know, make their decisions on whether they wanna go shop or you know, go to that particular location, but that's their own call. I think that businesses shouldn't be forced to you know, be obligated to I mean, oblige by things as long as it's not a protected class and it's not dealing with employment or some issue like that. This is just like them having, being forced to sell an object, I don't think that it's right to force businesses to do what, you know, to make something. I still think in that cake issue, I'd probably still stand on the side of the business, even though I do think that, you know, it's wrong to discriminate against someone because, you know, they are same-sex couples or whatever. If a same-sex, if the business themselves are making something that they're selling, it's the business's decision to decide whether they want to sell that object or not. It's no third party's decision unless it's like a franchise and the franchise is saying that you have to sell something. Do you That's think my there thoughts. would be a
2: difference between? I guess a final thing to wrap this one up is: Do you think there would be a difference between forcing a business to make something from scratch versus compelling a business to just sell something that they've already made um, to, to someone? Would that make? A difference? I
1: think that it, it's a huge difference. I think that you, know, you can compel companies to do certain things and you can compel them to make certain things, but if they already have something similar to that, then that's not a problem. But if you're compelling a business to take on... In- take on certain costs to actually make something from scratch that does I mean that is kind of infringing yourselves onto the business I still think that there's a lot of issues with all this stuff there's a lot of gray area even franchisees do this stuff with franchisors where you know you know like they will tell them to do certain things or franchisors do this to franchisees they'll tell them to do certain things that they don't really feel like doing and they have certain contracts in place where they can't obligate them to do certain things that they don't want to do But there's all kinds of gray area and all this stuff. I do think, though, in the end of the day on face value, you shouldn't force businesses to do much of that kind of stuff. I still don't think that, you know, like COVID's a little bit different, but I don't think businesses should be forced to like, you know, you know, have to do certain things with COVID. I do think that the government itself has an obligation to the entire public where they can mandate that you have to get vaccinated because it's a public safety issue. I don't think you should target any businesses in particular. Same way with this kind of stuff. I don't think businesses have to show solidarity with anybody, as long as they're maintaining and following all the laws that are at hand, and they're not discriminating against someone by not selling them an object, or they are not hiring somebody because they, are, because they belong to a certain protected class. I don't think that that's as far as it goes.
0: As a random hypothetical, let's say I make cards, but I only make cards for a certain kind of person. Let's say a white person, and a black person comes in and says, I want a card made for me, but I'm black. W- should they be forced to, let's say by the government, make that card?
1: I think that if you are selling. That's parts, where it gets
0: touchy for me, and that's where I I'm think, like, I don't. I think know if you it.
1: are selling any object, anyone should be allowed to buy it, regardless of whatever color of skin they are, or whatever race they are, any of that stuff. But, I don't think that a business should be forced to have to make a particular card because, you know, some group likes those types of cards more. I don't really know exactly about this card situation. I'm a little bit lost on how that would completely plan out. But, I mean, if there is an object like a cake that is, like, you know, supposed to have something on it, then... I think that the businesses have the right to decide whether they want to make that cake or not, but they can't decide who to sell that cake to because that is discrimination and you're not allowed to do that. Yeah.
0: And, and society at large is basically able to say, hey, we're not going to support that at all. You're wrong for doing that. You don't get any funding from anyone, but the government shouldn't have to tell you yes or no. unless it's a publicly traded company.
1: I do think that publicly traded companies are a little bit of a more gray area if it's regulated by the SEC. So if it's a publicly traded stock company or anything like that, that's a little bit different. But if you're a private entity, then governments don't really have the right to interfere with stuff as long as you're not you know, discriminating against a certain group or violating some kind of law.
2: Well, let's go ahead and talk about public support and private entities. I think the, the merging of those two is the family business here. And I think nothing hurts family businesses more than big, bad government coming in and giving them more taxes. So uh, this week, Senator John Thune of South Dakota, he's a Republican, brought this up during um, tax changes in the Democratic spending bill that that has been proposed. And he is super against the death tax. He wants there to be an exemption for uh, family farms. That would expire under this legislation if it were to pass in this big bill that we've been talking about—the omnibus package of the the three trillion dollars—and how it would be rolled back to the previous Obama standards. So, I guess Tyler and Pratik, my question here is: Should the government? How many times should the government be allowed to tax, um, you know, a dollar once once it gets paid out? Because as we all know, you know, the employer they get taxed when they're earning the income it gets taxed when it's passed on to you as wages it gets taxed again when you spend that on things should should we have
0: like a limit on how much a dollar can be taxed
1: you want to go first dollar
0: all i have to say is i don't believe in the death tax like i don't really i understand why it's in place but i don't think it should be a thing i don't i don't think um I don't think that's the right of the government to take money away from the person that dies and who they want to give the money to it's why why is that a taxable event like you said it's already been taxed a million times before why do you have to get
1: taxed on your death i i agree with tyler and what i would say to answer this particular co- question on should the government tax a dollar more than once is that since like you know we've always had taxes we are we get taxed through everything that we do in some way or another if I am a business owner, if I am a estate owner, whatever I own, me going to, that pl- going to that location, I pay a tax because you know there's some gasoline tax that they will collect whenever I have to go fill up my car or whenever I get to the gas station. They will also collect a tax whenever I actually, if I make any expenditures when I'm getting to that place. And then they, I also have to pay a tax for that property itself. Then I have to pay a tax to anything that I sell from that property. Then on top of everything else, if it's generating any income, then I also have to pay an income tax on top of that. And if I am a corporate entity, then I get double tax because I also have to pay a corporate tax on top of the income tax that's already in place. The problem with the taxes is that they all go to different places. So the property tax goes to the city. The sales tax, it depends. Generally, it goes to the states, but some cities have certain provisions in place based on their state constitutions that they also generate some revenue from sales tax. Income tax goes to the federal government and I think all of that stuff plays a big role on ask, answering that particular question. Now, because they've collected all this tax in the lifetime of this person that's an estate owner, I really don't think they need to tax their ghost and tax any people that don't exist anymore or tax anyone that this money is going to go to until they actually possess that possess that property or possess whatever assets are in place i don't think that the government should have the right to tax people that are dead i think you tax people enough but i don't think that you know we can really answer the question should the government tax a dollar more than once because that always has happened and it's always existed since taxes have existed and i think that i mean there's fairness to why that's in place and there's issues to it as well but i think the main but main reasoning for it is it's three different types of government in the United States: state, local, and federal. And I think that plays a role into where that tax fund is, tax funding is going. I think local governments don't have any money as it is anyway. Um, I don't think that you know there's any problem per se with the property tax. I think that's the most legitimate form of tax, just because the local government does more stuff to benefit the society than any of the other two branches of government. Um, I just my opinion because they're more closer related to what is going on to with the citizens themselves and they don't have enough money as it is but i don't i feel like you know we we need to eliminate certain taxes that you don't need to necessarily have and i think death tax is one of them
2: fair enough i mean i guess my counter argument to that would be i think generally as a society we want to tax things when capital goods exchange ownership and an estate is another one of those things. Even though someone may be a family member, now it is in a new person's name. And I think something like that should be taxed. I think one of the most fundamental things in our system that we should be taxing is land. And this is case in point, what like land is the issue at play when it comes to the death tax for for farming. I agree that death tax for some other sorts of goods and possessions, I'm not a huge fan of it in some of those cases, but as far as farms, that's actually one of the most fundamental things that I do think we need to tax. Otherwise, you just end up with these families sort of growing bigger and bigger. And I, I fully understand the counter to what I'm saying right now, which is you know, the number of family farms has been shrinking over time because what you have to end up doing is liquidating part of that land deal and then selling it off to, well, let me guess, the only people able to buy it, which is a corporation, some larger company. It's not like you have the neighboring families we're going to buy a piece of that land and like give it back to you or something maybe in some cases, but I um, do at, at a fundamental level, I, I know in practice there's some, you know, nuance to how it plays out, but at a fundamental level, I believe that when something change owner changes ownership and changes hands, it should be taxed. And especially when it comes to land. So even though I can certainly empathize with some of those farming families, I do fundamentally believe that if land ownership is changing hands and going to someone else and going in someone else's name to say, I own this thing, I think you need to tax it. And another thing I think it does, which um, you could say, you know, these family farms, some of them are struggling the rest of it. Hey, that may be my sympathies uh, to them. However, I am very much against families sort of building upon and inheriting wealth without any counters to them. I understand, Pratik, your point about taxing um, something when someone's owning something, which is, hey, you've got to pay these property taxes, you've got to pay that and Honestly, dude, all that stuff is BS anyway. You have someone come out and evaluate. Oh, here's how much the land is worth, and of course, you're trying to undervalue your land as much as possible until the
1: point. No, you not sell necessarily. It, but... Only, only if you're not trying to sell it. If I am trying to sell the land, then I want my land to be at a higher value. And most of these types of land, so said, it depends on the size. I know, but I'm just clarifying.
2: <laughs> hey, fair enough. You said it louder than I did, so. Um... <laughs> in any case i I guess that's that's my main point i i know we definitely don't agree on this fully but um before we move on to what's going on with uh corporate taxes which i know everyone loves to talk about how 130 uh countries have reached a sort of a deal on this starting in 2023 potentially um was there anything else you guys wanted to add about death tax or or this particular thing in general with uh thune and the family farms in south dakota
1: I think the only thing that I want to counter with what you said is that I feel like, I mean, they're always paying taxes. The only time that this gray area does exist is whenever that person is no longer there and that land is being transferred. I just think that, I mean, the law's always been there. Republican Party sucks at what they do anyway. They've been trying to fight death tax for the last, like, 50 years, and they still haven't accomplished anything, and they've had billions of times that they've been in office. But I think that because the death tax is still there... Like that's kind of our stigma behind it. And many things, many transaction costs do exist whenever I am transferring a property to some other person. Um, And you also have 1031 exchange and all that stuff is a little bit different. But whenever someone dies, I just think that that's like the only time where I don't think that it's right to charge anyone anything until the transaction takes place. Once the transaction takes place, they're going to be taxed anyway. I just think that, you know, that could be that one relief factor because, I mean, obviously the person's dead, so there's going to be some mourning that takes place, I'm guessing, unless the person's really wealthy and everybody hates him, they're just waiting for him to die. But, I mean, in general, most cases... I think whenever you have something sensitive like that, I do think that it's kind of funny that Democrats haven't done anything about this because they're all about morality and thinking about welfare of other people and all this stuff. Like this is one of those things that, all right, someone's kicked the bucket, dude's no longer around, so now let's charge him for it because he's no longer around. And who's going to pay him? All the people that are beneficiaries to his estate or her estate. I just think that is one of those things. They're just not, it's a gray area. An argument can be made, but we've always said the death tax because the Republican Party can't defend itself or defend any of their values or policies that they try to advocate for. It's happened forever. You know, they haven't accomplished anything. Dude, so it's so I don't funny to me is that Pratik change. has
2: literally worked on, like, state-level politics. I forget if you've been involved in local, but, like, I, I know you, like, you worked on the Hill for a bit. And, dude, it's hilarious <laughs> to me that every time, and you worked for Republicans, all of it, and you're like, they've got no values. They're inept. <laughs> <laughs> they're not good at their jobs. It's like, you've literally worked for these people. It's your fault, critique You're the problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, nah, I was an intern, so I'm not the problem. I mean, but I would say this though, like that's one of those things I always talk about it. We're gonna talk about it a little bit more when we talk about McConnell. But I think that's the weirdest thing about the Republican Party is the Democrats, they definitely like every individual politician, they all have differing opinions from each other, they all argue, they have their own Democratic Party riffs, but in the end of the day, they all get together and they all figure out what they need to do because they know how to play politics. Republican Party doesn't even come up with any ideas that they can even play politics on. They're just anti whatever the other party does. The only reason why the Republican Party has any, you know, limelight at the moment is because Donald Trump gave a party that gave a, gave the party an agenda. Before that, since Bush, like, yeah, sure, Bush had his own stuff that was going on, but Bush didn't really have, like, you know, any intense policy proposals during his time of day. But 9-11 happened and we went to war, so Bush became a wartime president, so that became, like, the hoo-ha about George W. Bush. But since Ronald Reagan, Republican Party hasn't accomplished anything and i honestly think that you know donald trump was like that one like figure that was like all right now i have an agenda people may like it people may not like it people may like me people may hate me but i am what i am and i have opinions and you know that's going to be the party and the republican party as itself doesn't have any ideas values or agendas or opinions of their own anyway because they're a bunch of losers so they're like all right let's get on track pretty, pretty, trump, trump. hold on
2: hold on okay look i want to turn into tyler both of us have been talking a lot but i just wanted to say if anyone has started a drinking game to see how long into each episode it takes for critique to mention trump (laughs) 23 (laughs) minutes this time take your shot tyler what's on your mind
1: yeah
0: so with that you guys know way more about the uh, tax system than i do but with that we'll move on to the global tax system and how the corporate minimum tax rate globally is going to be changed or is being proposed to be changed so, more than 130 countries have agreed on sweeping changes to how big global companies are taxed. It includes a 15% minimum corporate tax rate designed to deter multinational corporations from stashing profits in low-tax countries, also known as tax havens. Uh, this was announced Friday, and it was in part uh, to address the ways that globalization and digitization of the world economy have changed how we all live, how we operate, and how these uh, companies are able to store their money so they aren't taxed for it. So how how do you guys feel about that? We have more than 130 countries. It's obviously not every country in the world. You have some, I wouldn't call them tremendously major players saying, actually, we're going to object to this. We're not going to abide by this. But for the most part, most of the um, big players in the global economy have agreed to this deal. Um, so what do you guys think? Is this an effective way of preventing tax havens, preventing these corporations from moving their uh, their, uh, their companies away from, let's say, the United States where the tax rate's higher? Or is it going to be a, ne- a negative outcome altogether?
2: Well, Tyler, let me turn it back on you because you're an innovator. You like to take risks. Y- you got all this startup passion behind you. And so let's, I don't know, let's say you, Tyler, are a small country. All the big countries say, you know what, we know you're trying to grow. We know you're trying to develop and attract companies and make a better life for your citizens through economic growth. However, we're going to come in and set a price floor on the amount that you have to tax these companies. So even if you wanted low tax rates to encourage a bunch of growth in all these companies investing in your country, you're not allowed to anymore because now you're a part of our agreement that benefits us the modernized well not modernized but the more developed countries the more developed economies who have all the money and have the super high tax rates in the beginning how would you feel about it as a smaller country with
0: lower tax rates I mean, what I would do is I would agree to it and then under the table, not tax them as much so I would get, attract companies. I mean, this is what happened with Ireland. Like, they were one of the last people to the table. I think they're on board with this. But they basically, up until this point, were like, we want Facebook, Google, all you guys to come in. Our corporate tax rate's super low. This is how we're going to compete on the global stage. You're absolutely right. They, these smaller countries are at a big disadvantage by doing this. It just goes back to the fact that when you introduce regulation, you're not hurting the biggest players you're really hurting the little guys that are trying to make their edge, trying to make their way. So for them, it's not going to be great. But then you even have these companies saying, yeah, absolutely, we want to have this minimum tax rate. It'll level the playing field for everyone. We won't have to worry about this in the future. And it's great for those big guys, but no one's thinking about the smaller countries. And quite frankly, if you are one of the smaller countries trying to uh, – trying to attract attention, bring these companies, build your economy, you shouldn't abide by a rule like this. It may be better for the overall uh, health of the global system so these companies aren't moving all their profits offshore to these tax havens, but ultimately it's gonna negatively impact a lot of the smaller countries, as you had just mentioned.
2: I feel like one of the issues could potentially be not only the smaller countries, but a small business in these smaller countries. I mean, one of the problems they have right now is how do we get capital to these startups in rapidly developing countries who are very low down on the in terms of economic opportunity and growth and output and it's like how do you actually invest in and you know everyone loves to throw around the word empower but how do you legitimately empower people in these developing countries these smaller economies to go and have you know a a local mom and pop thriving economy how do you do that? How do you make it so that these big players can't just bulldoze and push around the smaller businesses in these small countries? I don't know how you would do that with a plan like this if everyone has that set threshold, if it applies to small businesses too.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I if like, it does actually. They say multinational corporations, so maybe it doesn't apply it does. to small businesses. I'm not quite sure.
1: It See, it does and it doesn't. So it depends on the size of the corporation and where it operates. So some company like Palantir is what you would call a multinational corporation. You would also call some company like Dell a multinational corporation, and then you would call some company like Amazon or Facebook a multinational corporation. I think the problem with multinational corporations is is that it depends on the size of that company, how strong they are, what are their financial status status, and how they would be able to accompany this kind of, you know, tax bracket. That's surprising that both Nick and Tyler agree on something that I would have probably said and it was funny because I would have probably said something similar. My point is that I think that it depends on how you look at it. You it is good in some cases that they're trying to fight um you know tax havens that's a good thing i think the main issue is that you have a lot of large companies companies like facebook companies like amazon particularly amazon they suck at paying corporate tax because they know how to play with the tax codes wherever they go and companies like apple have purposefully domiciled in ireland because they pay less in corporate income tax and I think the genius about it in particular is that domiciles are not that, you I mean, I mean you can do business wherever you, you wherever you are, but a domicile is like a residence. So they you have certain legal rights and privileges that come with it. It comes with certain voting powers so the if the business is providing, you know, con, con, uh, contributions or certain like things like that, you have certain leeway on what they can do and how they can do it, and that's their primary residence, so they pay the most taxes there. But, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't pay any taxes. They just don't necessarily pay corporate income tax. And that's been a big problem everywhere since the corporate taxes existed because companies have a history of evading them. I do think that the biggest issue with this particular thing is that I don't know how much this is going to change how certain players operate. Like, I don't think that Amazon is going to be like, oh man, now I have to pay a 15% corporate minimum tax. I'm going to have to pay that corporate minimum tax because some country is going to get pissed at me if I don't there's they've been evading corporate corporate income taxes for so long regardless of wherever they've domiciled it's not like they're gonna like jump on board and be like yay i want to play pay my right share of taxes now because these countries have decided to make this agreement and so think, you don't think the countries can actually enforce it properly i don't think that i think that co- some countries can enforce it really well the problem is that corporate income taxes have been evaded generally by larger multinational corporations, which are the main people that they're trying to target with this current agreement. And just to clarify,
0: it's companies with more than 750 billion euros in revenue. It'll affect about 100 global firms. So that going back to your question about small businesses, it's really
1: only affecting the top, top businesses. I think but even then, though, like certain companies that are in that threshold, certain companies are trillion dollar companies certain companies are 750 billion dollar companies that they just made it you there is like a loser in this game the loser are the smaller people the smaller corporations that do meet that threshold that tyler just stated it's like the, the smaller 30%. 800 billion dollar a year revenue companies. yeah the the companies that are at the smaller end of that 750 billion no, I, I get what you mean so So, I don't think that... I mean, you can make an argument that it's, like... It's going to generate some positives. Like, yeah, sure, you're going to probably evade... You're going to probably eliminate some of the tax haven stuff that is going on. But... I think that if companies can play around tax codes and they've always played around tax codes, I don't think that large companies that are that big, that have a history of doing this stuff, are going to change their mind with with this particular setting in place. Now, the main thing that you guys discussed in the beginning, which is very important, is the actual countries and how they behave. So certain countries like China... They have a history of breaking down agreements that they've, you know, followed in and signed on with, and China is the largest, if not the second largest economy in the entire world. So, certain countries have a benefit, or certain companies, not countries, have a benefit to domiciling in some country country like China because that means that they have more access to the actual consumers and customers that are in that area just because there's more name recognition. So if I am a smaller company that makes that $750 billion threshold, again, I'm saying small, that's a big company, but I mean, it's not like an Amazon or Apple or something. They're companies that are just making it. Those companies are going to move to some of those other countries like China and China wants to get as many companies on board as they can. So even if there is an agreement in place, what are they going to do to enforce it? This is an OECD organization, uh, organizational agreement. So that's the um, economic group that is, you know, is multinational. So I don't think that it's, you can necessarily force any country to do anything outside their sovereignty because, you know, that is part of their sovereignty laws. Even if they sign on to something, this is why many trade deals break up. Um, and I think this is one of those cases where it's hurting a lot of the little guys. But it also, um, you know, is going to hurt countries that decide to follow the law correctly. And I don't necessarily know if you can trust all of the players that have signed on to the agreement, such as China, Russia, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera.
0: But I definitely think we're moving in towards like a, a globalized finance system where everything is becoming uniform slowly. It's very interesting to see because something like this 50 years ago would have been unthinkable. And today we're like, oh, let's all basically do this, the exact same thing. Let's have the, almost the exact same tax code for these giant companies.
2: Hey, on that topic, why don't we talk about uh, the uh, Tyler. So Tyler sent us um, an, uh, a link to an op-ed that Bloomberg had published where there was this guy saying, hey, let's have Amazon and Microsoft, let's have these big companies just have a have a seat at the table. Let's just make them a UN member state, essentially. They're big enough anyway. They've got all this influence. Why don't we just go ahead and do this? Um, and, of course, he's playing devil's advocate in, in the whole thing, saying why we shouldn't throughout the piece. But, I mean, guys, it seems like they're kind of functioning that way. Like, they have so much power throughout the world you know, instead of making South Sudan the next member of the United Nations, 194 or whatever they're going to be, why don't we just let Amazon and some of these big multinationals have a seat at the table? Because they're kind of on board, on par with with these other uh, nation states. Do they have all the power today? Or are the countries fighting back with this uh, minimum, minimum 15 globally?
1: Again, I would say one thing politically before we talk about this. I do find it hilarious that Mark Zuckerberg and um, Jeff Bezos are like career long Democrats. They support the party that is going to make them pay more in taxes. I think that's the dumbest thing of all time, but that's politics. And the thing is that no one gets in their mind man, why does Jeff Bezos vote Democrat? Because he cares about the well being of the people. No, because they come up with certain things where they also find ways to not make them pay as much in taxes. It's not like the Republican Party is going to get votes anyway because they're a bunch of losers as it is. Well, they They do pay both
0: sides. They publicly support the Democrats, but I think a good point to make is the guy, Bezos, that made a company that was only going to be profitable 20 years in the future is the same guy that's making the calculation to say, I'm going to support this party knowing in the long run I'm going to benefit from it. That's what you have
1: to understand. I guess. But I mean, I mean Democrats right now are pushing the agenda they want to break up all these big companies because they're too big for themselves. If I was Amazon, what benefit do I get is of it being de- broken up?
2: Critique, is it the
1: Democrats or is it Warren AOC and maybe Bernie? I mean, it's a talking point from the Democratic Party. Again, Democrats have this thing. They're good at politics. This is my point. Democrats know how to play their tables and they know how to play their cards. Certain politicians haven't said an inch or word about any of this stuff. They haven't mentioned what side they're on. They haven't mentioned whether they support, you know, this breakup idea. A lot of these people are all about breaking up the big banks, and this has somehow trickled down into breaking up big tech. But these players are really good at playing politics. Republicans can actually take a class from these people and learn how to play politics because they know what they're doing. Some of these people, like, I mean, what is his name? Like Sherrod Brown. They're geniuses in how they play words. If you ever watch any of these like you know, hearings that the Senate Banking and Housing Committee has, and I think one of these things that they're really good at is that Democrats, ex- I mean, especially the ones that are not as outspoken about it, that are your party leadership, hasn't taken any stance on promoting Amazon, but they haven't taken any stance on shutting down any of these breakup ideas either. Like they're really good at playing their cards because they want to make sure that they satisfy all their voter bases that will potentially vote for them. And the reason I'm saying all this stuff is that, yeah, sure, Republicans in this argument sound very genuine. Oh, we know exactly what the Republican Party wants to do. But these people, these certain companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google and these large multinational companies that do take a tax hit every year because these companies are trying these country these um, governments are trying to make them pay a higher tax and they also talk about breaking them up and all this stuff they know that they can play their own cards and they can still win in the end of the day if like the governments themselves democrats continue to play politics at the way that they're playing politics, and I think that that's why a lot of these t- the, a lot of these large multinational companies. If you ever look at how their campaign contributions are, like it's always like seventy percent Democrat, thirty percent Republican, or eighty percent Democrat, twenty percent Republican, and this goes across the board. This could be banks. No, it's the not. Same no, no it's not. Yo, Please critique. You I-
2: if you're a mining company, if you're a hydrocarbon oil and gas mining not, company, you I'm are not, are not donating about- to Republicans seven. 30. I didn't
1: I didn't say mining companies. I said big tech. You said all companies banks.
2: across the board.
1: All companies across the board that have banking or that are involved in tech. I should have made that oil clear. Oil companies are
2: tech companies.
1: Not technically. When I think of big tech, I'm not thinking about oil. That's an energy company. Um, I am focused on certain companies like that in particular. Any bank that you pick because Wells Fargo, Bank of America, like, no, nah, you, can't, you can't say not say BBNT anymore, Truist, any of those. If you look up their exact campaign contributions, again, when I used to, when I, whenever I was in the Republican Party, when I worked in the party, these people would go head over heels for these banks. They would literally bow down to whatever the banks wanted to do, and a lot of their policies that they would enforce or want to endorse would be policies that would benefit these big banks. So that you know there's more conservatism towards banking and that there's less you know potential problems that can be caused and again democrats carried the most conservative legislation of all time in dodd frank which if a republican would have proposed that it would have made absolutely a hundred percent um sense but democrats proposed it so now either way you go the banking system is very conservative but with banks and techs regardless they have things they have a situation going on where the Democratic Party knows exactly how to play politics because they continue to gain all the votes and supports of the people that are trying to that are all about breaking up these big tech or breaking up these big bank companies. But they also want to keep those big banks and those big tech people happy, the same way they get all this funding from all these private healthcare companies that are endorsing the Democratic Party, even if like Pfizer, Moderna, etc. Even if those same you know, Democrats that are part of the party are the ones talking about breaking up the private healthcare system and creating a whole public healthcare system situation, I think that it's all way of words, and this is why the Democratic Party has been successful for a long period of time in how to play politics. Republican Party can't even figure out what it wants to do. The Democratic Party has literally, you know, ate this, sucked it up, drank it up, and completely like, you know, showed exactly what they want to do. And they are encompassing all the people that they want to get to vote for their party by getting the people that are all about breaking it up, along with the people that they're talking about breaking up to vote for the same party.
2: So, pratik is McConnell's retreat on the debt standoff? Um, is that just a matter <laughs> of him you know, screwing up and not holding the line or is it because he's beholden to the big banks and the big banks and special interests have said, hey, McConnell, you know, we're okay with this. Cool off.
1: So, I mean, the storyline with there is that. So obviously we know about the debt standoff that was going on. But the Republican Party was engaging in a debt standoff with the Democrats because they're trying to slow down Biden's agenda from taking place. It's part of their, you know, shutdown method that always exists from both parties. But McConnell seizes on, you know, debt debt standoff to undermine Biden's agenda. Sorry, my computer is being really slow. Um, But yeah, in the in frantic bid to avert a default on the nation's debt, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell... Um, mitch mcconnell held a position of unusual power as the one who orchestrated both the problem and the solution that's the way they're spinning it i think that you have this big debt standoff that is being taken is taking place because they're trying to slow down the democrats from doing what they need to do and that's how you play politics democrats did this stuff for four years whenever donald trump was there where they if they don't get their way they will try to host a standoff if they have enough of a like you know a minority to try to distort the amount of votes they need to get stuff done. Now, The funny thing about it is that you have senators like Sherrod Brown from Ohio that I talked about. I'm the only person that's a big fan of Sherrod Brown, by the way, because I don't like any of his policies, but the dude really knows how to play politics. But he's the chairman of the Senate Banking and Housing and Urban Affairs Committee, and he was talking about how Mitch McConnell loves chaos. He's a very smart tactician and strategist, but the country pays the price so often for what he does. I think the Republican Party is a joke. For two reasons. One reason is is that these playing cards that this stuff gets pulled in. Democrats do this stuff all the time, and the Republicans don't know how to do that same game plan. The second reason is is that you have like you we're talking about how like oh wow you know the Republicans had this amount of power to try to shut down this stuff. No, Republicans had the power to like fall apart whenever they started to try to do something to shut down this stuff. I think that if you are in a position of power, you have to continue to carry it through. Republicans are a bunch of wussies. They run off whenever they feel any fear of any threat about anything that's going to potentially happen. Like, I'm sure they had these whole Republican strategy meeting and they analyzed this whole stuff going on and they're like, whoa, we might lose some votes because of this debt standoff and we're going to potentially piss off certain investors because the stock market is going to take a hit because of what we're going to do. So what we need to do is we need to stop it. And that's what we or, do. Or, or We're the biggest withdrawal sell, because we know the economy's going down. <laughs> yeah. The Republican yeah, point, Party, Republican party you... is the oh. party of this.
2: Sorry, Pratik. Didn't mean to interrupt. But uh, Tyler, how do you feel about McConnell? Because clearly Pratik just hates himself and his own party.
0: Well, what are you I thinking know. about, Mitch? <laughs> I mean, every the this dude's a Republican, he's like, "I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican voter," and every time he talks to Republicans, all he does is call them stupid idiots. They play politics wrong. It's pretty hilarious. But as far as the debt thing goes, like this happens. it it seems like with every under like under Obama it happened, under Trump it happens. It's happening now. It's just whatever side is in the majority is like, "Oh, we gotta fund it," and the other side like, oh, "I don't know about that." Maybe we shouldn't fund it this time. It just seems like a silly a political game that happens every few years. So I, I guess Mitch McConnell, he might be a dick, but like this, the Democrat equivalent would do the exact same thing. So, I just,
2: do you think he should be the leader of the Republican Party? The face of it?
0: <laughs> I mean, what a beautiful face to have as the face of your party, so why not? He looks I like a know, turtle. <laughs>
1: So I wanted to counter back to what Tyler was saying about like how I'm always pissed off about the party and all this stuff. I am, but the reason I'm pissed off is not because of like what. No, it's they because feel you care about the
0: party, I, I understand. Yeah,
1: and it's not just that I care about the party; it's the fact that I care about the voters in that party. I feel like the Republican Party does a lot of injustice to their voters because they don't follow through on any of their promises or anything that they want to pursue. The only reason why Donald Trump was so popular in the Republican Party is because regardless of whether we liked him or not, he made up his agenda and he stuck to it. These people like, all right, they see some, you know, whoosh of air and they're like, oh, this stuff is going to be chaotic. Let's retreat now because it can become worse. They're just like a bunch of cowards. I think that benefit of the Democratic Party is that they have they have their cowards in their group too their main people they're all a bunch of cowards but then you also have their progressive people, your AOCs, your Elizabeth Warrens. they're not cowards. they say whatever they want to say and they believe whatever they want to believe and they'll stick to it till the end of di- uh, end of time. Now whenever they have to vote, then they kind of vote whatever their party line is and all that stuff kind of goes out the window because they want to make sure that they get reelected. But I think as a whole, That's the benefit of that party. Like, its I mean, if you are a Democratic progressive voter, you're happy about your party. Not because you love all the agenda values that the Democratic Party has. They have as much corruption as the Republican Party does. But you love the fact that you have people that stand up for what they believe. Republican Party doesn't have that. And I think that's part of the whole, like, you know, Tea Party movement. That was the whole movement toward towards, while, while these people are all America first now, that's the whole movement toward why Donald Trump became this big party leader. And I think that that's the movement that the Republican Party has to continue to go on. Otherwise, the Republican Party is going to be like the Bidens of the future. Like, yeah, Biden's president, he's not accomplishing much. That's the Republican Party right now. And that's been the Republican Party for a long time. And I don't think that is going to change until things change in that party. And hopefully, four years later, we figure out that our plans are not working. Because we have people like McConnell that, you know, jump ship whenever things get scary. And those people have also been in office longer than any of us can even remember. So, that's the problem with the party. Just wanted to clarify.
0: Well, having concluded all the domestic topics, why don't we move (laughs) abroad to some of our uh, uh, not-so-friendly competitors, even though they're one of our biggest uh, trading partners, China and China's Xi, calling for the peaceful reunification with Taiwan. So the Chinese leader Xi Jinping said on Saturday that a peaceful reunification of Taiwan with China's mainland was in Beijing's best interest. Of course he would say that uh they said that reunification of the nation must be realized and will definitely be realized for sure so for those of you that don't know china since 1949 uh there was i believe w- what happened in 1949 there was some kind of like conflict between the two nations there was oh a my god so, oh wait, the i'll, I'll, no, I'll educate.
1: no
2: no you're not allowed to okay you talked enough this episode. Tyler, I'm going to give you a little info and then you're going to run with it, okay? It's going to be beautiful. Oh, so, you had the nationalists, okay? And they were fighting the communists and it turns out the communists win, the nationalists run across the uh, run across the water, they go to Taiwan. The native Taiwanese are like Why the hell are you guys here? Leave us alone. We want to self-govern. And the nationalists are like, no, you're not allowed to. We're taking over. This is our island now. And they kind of integrated over time. But that's where we kind of stand, where the whole idea is the nationalists retreated to that island. And now, you know, we used to call it Formosa. If you go back and listen to presidential debates back in like the 50s and 60s, they're like, oh, the island of Formosa. No one says that anymore. Now it's Taiwan. That's what we talk about. Tyler,
0: over to you. Yeah, so Taiwan, we got this whole conflict that Nick loves to talk about, but of course... Uh, the Chinese story as of late has been, not as of late, for a while now, has been we need to reunify. We need to bring China back together to what it once was, the great empire of China, so it can be reborn. And they've been eyeing Taiwan for a while. They've done a bunch of military drills. They have ships uh, going over there. They have planes flying over uh, overhead. And Taiwan is a democratic nation. They are self-sustaining. They are sovereign. But as you know, if you deal with China, they don't allow you to even call Taiwan Taiwan. They say you have to call it Taipei. Chinese Taipei. So it's like they're very serious about no one – recognizing them as their own nation that's why they're looking to reunify them they're saying we need to do it by peaceful means and we all know that china's been very very aggressive and they may not necessarily want to accomplish this through peaceful means if they can't get it done given taiwan's resistance so what do you guys feel about the situation do you think that there could even potentially be a peaceful reunification of taiwan or is it just lip service because they know they have to say something like this in order to like ease the transition if it were to ever
1: happen I'm gonna take a dark horse um, argument on this. I think that that in the end of the day, if China really wanted to take over Taiwan, it could take over it right now. I really don't think that anything is stopping them apart from international pressure. What would all the other countries say if China well, hold was on. to go take over we've, Taiwan? We've
0: given a lot of defense systems to Taiwan and apparently for the past year or so we've been training a lot of their troops as well. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. we do, our military generals have plans to deal with Taiwan because that could be what causes the next world war. So it's not something that's just out of the box. We're just going to let them take it, like Russia with part of Ukraine. Like I don't think that's exactly what could happen.
1: I, I think that, I mean, again, the only reason why China isn't doing all this stuff is because China is the largest second largest most powerful economy in the world they don't want to compromise that in any way they think that it's probably against their interest to go to actual full-out war with taiwan because that's going to hurt them economically and they don't want to worry about that stuff and i think that if china china does have a large military might if china really wanted to go take over a small island with small with this with the small population they can do it any time of the day um only thing that's stopping them is that they know that it's not about taking over a little bit of land the main issue is making sure that they're the strongest economic powerhouse that they can be and i think china's on their way to being there like the more and more stuff that like our countries do to try to promote you know certain things and certain laws that china has to abide by china doesn't follow anything they don't even follow geneva code they have they're committing genocide on a group of people that they don't even care about in their own country so I think that that's China. I think that if China wants to go ahead and do something, they can. Nothing's really stopping them. They just don't want to face economic repercussions. It's almost like Putin. Putin can go bomb a bunch of countries. No one's going to do anything. American, American government, they can't accomplish anything. All they can do is yell about stuff. But then it all falls apart on the UN because they're a Q5 member and so is China. So I think that's the way China is.
0: This is a case where you've talked about, like, state building before and how putting democracies yeah. in places where atrocities are happening is necessary. But we have a fully operating, functioning, flourishing government in Taiwan that could potentially be overtaken by the communist uh, regime in China and completely overthrow that. Overthrow any sense of democracy or human rights. Basically what happened with Hong Kong. So shouldn't that be, like, a serious issue that we're looking to defend uh, even think, possibly with troops on the ground
1: i think it is um but i'm a neocon i do think that in many cases you do need to build a military these countries need to be autonomous for themselves you couldn't rely on a third party power coming in and taking over to help them out i think some countries like afghanistan and certain countries like that it's a gray area because it's not like there's any economic ties that other countries have with them Those countries have always been kind of isolated. Same with North Korea. Like, we can take action against North Korea all day if we want. Only reason we're not doing that is we don't want to, you know, destroy our relationships with China. But I think when it comes to certain countries like Taiwan, if America goes out bombastically to try to do something to stop Taiwan, that will hurt us economically. If we don't do anything doubt heard us you know in terms of our argument about democracy building and i think that is good that countries have democracies but you have to this countries also have to learn to stand up for themselves sometimes and that's okay, the but whole issue look, that I Is have. taiwan
0: ever in ever going to be able to stand up to china just given volume of population size of the economy it's like almost like arizona fighting the red like the east coast or something like who's going to win that battle
2: just make it part and of east india boom
1: and that, that's my whole argument about why America needs to be involved on the global scale. And that's why we need to intervene into certain countries and do nation building and engage in military conflicts and put military people there for that exact argument that you placed out that what is, how is Taiwan going to be able to defend itself. But that's the problem. And that's my argument is that if China really wanted to go take out Taiwan and make Taiwan part of China through military force, they can do it. Nothing's really stopping them. Apart from that they want to maintain certain relationships in place, they want to make sure that their economy doesn't take a hit because all these countries are going to sanction them out of the water and that's going to probably hurt them a lot. And on top of everything else, I mean, America and China don't have the greatest relations, but we are still interconnected economically. If something happens in America, it directly impacts China a lot. If something happens in China, it directly impacts America as well. So if we sanction China, that's only going to directly impact us. Um, along with every other country because China literally makes everything in our world so I think that's the main issue China knows that they know what they're doing and they know that they can't just go out and all right take China through uh, all, they can't just like you know decide to take Taiwan through military force and I think that's the main issue but if Taiwan if China wanted to take over Taiwan they can take over Taiwan and what is it like two people against like 500 people Based on the numbers, if you were to divide it by a hundred or divided by a thousand, I don't think that you know China really Taiwan really stands a chance against China. But I think that's because of the economic situation in place, and that's because of how our world is so globally interconnected. If our glo- world wasn't globally interconnected, it would have been like in the past where you would have all the big countries taking over all the small countries, and that was the case until you know Truman and FDR created the UN and all that other process.
2: Thoughts? critique I don't have any thoughts. I mean, look, I love President Xi. Every night I hug my Winnie the Pooh bear before I go to bed. I cherish him. I look favorably upon him. Please, dear God, do not ruin my stock options in Taiwan semiconductors. Um, that, that's a joke, by the way. I'm not invested in them. But that, look, I mean, you guys raised some really good points around cost-benefit, and I think that's the main one. One, international pressure, too, just in terms of raw, like... And from a realist perspective, what do they have to gain if they bomb it, if they like conduct a full-on invasion? like What, what is it really going to be? Is it worth it to 1.2 or 3 or ho- however many Chinese people you have, mainland Chinese people you have, to take control of Taiwan? I don't think it's going to be worth it to that many people um, for you to kind of ruin some of the infrastructure of this country that if, if you can achieve through peaceful means, just, you know, sub- subsume it. You know, added on to the great Chinese empire, which, dude, I have to say is so ironic because the entire idea behind the Communist Party in China was that it was going to be a new way forward. You were going to reject sort of the past, not completely, but you were going to reject the Chinese empires, the Qing, the Ming, the the rest of it. And you were going to forge a new way forward. And now instead, it's like, oh, let's look to the past. Let's look to the imperial dynasties. Let's look to the lands that we used to control under empire, under oppression. And let's return to that. And that should, in my opinion, should be the furthest thing that they should ever want to achieve. And I just don't see it. Again, I get it as far as the nationalists going there and them being all upset about that. Chiang Kai-shek, go after him. But, you know, a couple of generations down the line, who really cares at this point, honestly? I, I don't know. I guess countries have long memories and the rest of it. But I don't know, dude. It's been a while. Like the whole Cuba thing with the United States, after a certain point, we don't care as much. Maybe we care a little, but it's not a huge deal. I think China should do the same thing with Taiwan. It's literally completely manufactured. If you went to, like, people in, like, northern China... They don't care, it's not something top of mind until you bring it up to them. Unless it's like brought up to say, oh my God, Taiwan! They think they're their own thing. They're they're really a part of China. Unless you bring that up, no one is gonna care in their day to day. It's not you like you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my God, can you believe what's going on in Taiwan? No, no one cares.
0: So in any case, but you that- you assume they need public sentiment. Like they're they're communists. They're not democratic. They don't actually have to be representative of the population. It's the people in Beijing deciding this, and they've already taken severe measures that dampen their own economy to take more control, more power, more nationalist pride. They value the almost like the story of China over anything else. So them going after this small piece of land is just it's so important to them. I I guess I'm more pessimistic because I think they may actually do something. I think they're willing to bank that other countries aren't as willing to stand up for Taiwan as they are willing to fight for it. Honestly, they should just wait it out.
2: Give it like 10, 15 years. At that point, the United States will have gone one way or another. Europe will be whatever. You'll have the developing world, you know, sort of in Africa, Latin America, to some extent, good luck over there. But you'll really have Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, and of course, India, really developing a ton in the next, you know, decade. And I think if you just bide your time and wait for the U.S. to decline a little bit further as far as our global standing and global power... I think that would be the time to do it. I don't think now is the time, especially when, and I get you could like point to the um, internal turmoil going on within the country, but dude, if, if China did something with Taiwan, that is like the one thing that would bring Americans together right now. All of us would be like, F that we are going to war. We are getting involved. Let's do it again, baby. I know people say Afghanistan, Iraq, true tragedy. But our country has been at war pretty much every year of our existence since the beginning of time. We have been an international power at international war, and to think that that's suddenly going to magically go away in this, you know, time of peace and prosperity, which is unprecedented in human history. Maybe it does, but I think inertia is just too strong there. And if China were to do something, I could easily see us going to war with them. Easily,
0: it would. It, it would actually probably. Like it's sad to say, but it would probably be good for us. Something to unify us. As, this has always been true. Oh, I hope Every it never nation, happens. Civilization, right. for through all of history, if you don't have an enemy on the outside, you have enemies on the inside, and you rip yourselves apart. All right, so, Sunzu, you sure you want to no, go to war China? <laughs> again, I'm not saying I'm. I'm hopeful for it. It's just it, this is just a trend throughout all of human history. It's. If we have an enemy on the outside, if 9-11 happens, for instance, it brings us all together, gives us a con- common enemy, uh, that's valuable. Given the state of our country at this point, you're right. We're going to keep deteriorating. If we give it 15 years, you're right. They probably could just take Taiwan. So it's sad to say, but I that might be the best case scenario and for le- us, me, no matter how tragic it may be. Is let me
2: is. clarify to anyone listening, I don't think any of us on the show legitimately want war with China. None of us want that. None of us want countless numbers of people, both people in combat and civilians, to die. want that to be avoided at all costs. Personally, I'm more than happy for the current regime to keep going, which is you have these, this economic race, this economic conflict. I'm actually fine with that. I'm happy with that. I think at the end of the day, it will make all of us better as a result. But the second a conflict turns into a hot war... I do not want that in any way. I don't think that's good for anyone.
0: I think we're already at war with China. It is a Cold War at this point, but I think we've been at war with them. And I think everyone's underestimating the fact that we keep getting new revelations about how the COVID actually started and its origins, and the fact that China basically killed millions of people around the world, including a lot of American citizens. And look, you, you could say it was an accident and all, all that. They basically caused a plague. And like... Those are things people go to war for. So, I, you know, I, it it may happen. And I'm not saying I want war to happen, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: And that's how you know how much ties we are, tied we are economically to that country, along with the entire world. No one has taken a stance on doing anything or saying anything against China, regardless of them doing this entire COVID mess. Like, apart from Trump, maybe, but, I mean, Trump's one person. Like, What is as it, a Latvia? Whole,
2: Maybe Latvia, Lithuania, yeah. some one of those <laughs> countries. They've said something
1: like, but all these other countries, including the World Health Organization and stuff, like I've been critical about all this stuff a lot. But I think, I mean, that's part of that. That's the economic ties we have. Everyone is so interconnected that it costs more in terms of an economic skirmish. Than you know going into an all right uh, you know complete all-out war because that's going to hurt everybody economically it's no one's going to benefit from any of that stuff yep. i mean like along with all the countless lives and everything that would be lost like what are you going to do you're literally going to war to prove a point and like you're going to forget about whatever that point is by the time it war ends look at the taliban we talked about the taliban war i mean it fell up i mean like we had all this stuff and we had all these opinions on why we went there but then people forget about what was the main cause by the time it ends. You learn afterwards what was the main cause, but, you know, it's not a main yeah. issue. Well,
0: a lot of it's... Uh, Warfare has changed. A lot of it's info wars. is a lot of propaganda. That's that's mostly where these war supposed wars are playing out more and more and more. It's not as much like, we're going to shoot you, shoot you shoot me. It's, I'm going to tear your society apart from the inside by doing these covert campaigns, propagandizing, going through digital means hacking even. So I don't know. It's I, think, a scary world. I
1: think speaking of wars, uh, let's talk about Biden administration's war on trying to eliminate tax evasion. Ooh, so like the, the Biden administration <laughs> propose, proposes to widen IRS authority to help root out tax evasion by allowing them to receive annual aggregated reports of flows from bank accounts with a minimum of six hundred dollars. So basically, the Biden administration wants the IRS to spy on all bank accounts that have at least six hundred dollars in them, which so, is basically every bank thoughts?
0: account of any working person in the country.
1: Genius. So, what are y'all thoughts?
0: I mean, I I don't know how much it needs to be said, but do you want the tax age Do you want the government to be able to see every transaction you do? Do you think that's beneficial for a democracy to have politicians essentially in control of? what we're doing with our bank accounts, what we can and can't do, or what they do or don't see. I understand you want to maximize your tax revenue. I understand you want to tax, tax the wealthy for loopholes. But... Who created the tax code? Like, maybe we should look to the tax code and fixing that instead of saying, hey, we need to spy on everyone to make sure everyone pays. And if you really wanted to target the wealthy, why are you having access to almost every single person's bank account if it isn't just a major power grab? This seems like a severe overreach, a breach of privacy. I mean, this is the kind of fear like that you get with the dystopian society of them constantly having access to everything you do everything you have access to your monetary resource money is an incredibly power it's the most powerful tool in existence and they're saying no you can't control it on your own we need to be able to make sure you're spending your money properly make sure that we're able to take enough of your money so that's that's what i have to say you know i the think whole... it could
2: be as bad as you're saying tyler but look on the bright side turbo tax They'd go away. They'd get blown out of the water. Why do I need them if the IRS is looking at every transaction I do now? I don't need those special services. The government, tell me how much I owe in taxes. I'm sick of it. IRS, please. Sack up. Don't get bullied around by the special interests. McConnell, stand aside. Let the IRS just do its job and be like, all right, here's how much you owe in taxes. Great, thanks, IRS. Cool thing. I I don't need any of these third-party vendors. I think that would be the biggest benefit but to your point of this trying to um root out yeah, tax comfort evasion. over privacy dude rooting out tax evasion what a joke man like this isn't <laughs> gonna do anything to solve for that i can understand if they're like oh we're gonna look at really big accounts see how that goes like if you've ever talked to someone high up in a bank you know for a fact that there are not blacklisted but there are these accounts that they pay special attention to and sure they've got all these divisions to make sure you know they're they're compliant with federal regulations that there's no crime and laundering and money fraud but they these banks know it's like don't ask don't tell they know they've got all these rich foreign people who have criminal ties who are stashing all these money in west all this money in western <laughs> banks and they just turn a blind eye because it's bad for business everyone knows it's happening no one wants to acknowledge it or do anything about it because it's a total cash cow but in any case, that's my little rant. Is if six hundred dollars is the minimum, what a joke, dude! This does nothing for that.
0: I'm gonna have like a hundred different accounts, <laughs> just five hundred dollars each. This is, this have is you why? guys heard about the uh, have you guys heard about the Pandora paper thing that just leaked recently? Yeah, but really, Panama what did that reveal? Come out here? Vladimir
2: yeah. Putin is super rich. Everyone already knew
0: that. I think it's just emphasizing the point you're making. It's like we look at these look look what these people are doing with their money. All (laughs) the rich, wealthy people are manipulating their money so they don't have to pay tax. But Prateek, go ahead.
1: If you were to make a, if they were to make this argument that they would only look at bank accounts that were over a million dollars, that would make a lot more sense, and they would probably be able to actually root out some level of tax evasion. I don't think that is going to actually accomplish much, but they'll do something. This is just like overboard, like authoritarian. And I think this is why the Libertarian Party is 693,000 and strong people. They get 1% of the vote, and these are their voters. They're all pissed off that government is spying on them. And now they're giving them another reason to vote for the Libertarian Party that has even less, little, less agendas than both the Republicans and the Democratic parties on their bad days. So, yeah.
2: Maybe we get into this in a future episode. I know we're already over an hour, but I really think that we're kind of in an arms race between government and big companies. Who's going to have more power over the other? And to me, it seems like for every measure for a big government that people cry out against, it's really just, you know, government is slow. It's reactionary, especially in the United States. And the only reason why this stuff gets proposed is because they're trying to catch up to the private sector and what's going on there. So, um, I mean, I get it going after rich individuals. I don't think this is the right way to do it. But I do think there is a broader conversation to be had around how much power should the government have, because people always point to, you know, rising federal spending and the rest of it, in relation to managing these big companies who are increasingly running more and more of our lives and getting more data about us to the point where they know what we want before we even know what we want.
0: And they can make you want things that you wouldn't have wanted otherwise, which is equally as toxic.
1: And this is why a Ford Fiesta can't beat a Ferrari in a race. Because Ferrari's always going to be better than the Ford Fiesta. That's the government and the private sector. So I think that's that's all we have for today. Sal, are you going to do the... Yeah, that was
0: episode 48 of Politican. I thank you everyone for tuning in. And we will catch you next week. Thanks.